Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Good Good Judgment Judgment Podcast. Podcast. Folks, this is a podcast that's purpose is for Georgia judges or anybody else who might be interested in what goes on in the courtroom. Please understand that we are Georgia-focused, meaning that we are going to focus our attention on issues that arise under Georgia law, but occasionally we will get into some subjects of common interest. And we really appreciate you folks listening. And as we go to the studio audience, we ask, please hold your applause till the end. All right, now to the studio. Hello, folks. Welcome back to the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. Now, Tane, today you had a pretty good idea. You occasionally do that from time to time. And we're going to try a 20 questions format um, that usually leads to problems when you're a teenager. But in this circumstance, um, we're going to talk about domestic relations questions. And why don't you tell the folks kind of where this came from? Yeah, sure. I was on a panel of judges recently, and uh, several of the questions that were asked of that panel and in that panel discussion seemed to be good topics for discussion on this podcast. So I thought I would steal someone else's good ideas. I've done many times in my career, and I've stolen more good ideas than I've ever come up with. And and I thought we'd uh, discuss those things on the podcast. So these issues frequently arise, and each judge or anybody else who's listening Uh, to this may understand that the judge that you're in front of may handle them a little bit differently. So Tane and I are going to share our thoughts. Sometimes we talk about this stuff. Sometimes we've never talked about this stuff. So this might be rather interesting. So Tane, do you want to start? You want me to start? I'll get us started, Wade. Um, Let's start on the topic of domestic relations evidence and the introduction of evidence and some real basic stuff here. But I thought we'd start off with this. Wade, what are your biggest pet peeves regarding the presentation of evidence in a domestic relations case? All right. Leaving the evidence rules, which you know I'm a fanboy of. I know you are. You know I am. Um, I really do... I guess, miss it and like it when a lawyer comes in with a list that has the relevant account number. And if we're talking about this kind of visa versus that kind of visa card, I mean, sometimes when I don't think everybody understands the lawyers understand their case very well, the judges typically don't. So if there are two charge cards or two different uh, kinds of cars or whatever, if you would put that on an Excel spreadsheet as a trial brief or something, not that it's necessarily evidence of anything, but then even if I disagree that the balance should have been this or wasn't that, I can use that as my note taking for my, for my hearings. The other thing, and this is not pure evidence rules, it is not having financial affidavits and the things I need to do to do my job. It drives me crazy. Yeah, I agree, Wade. And, and, and there's some really basic things that I hate to admit, but they are little pet peeves of mine. And one of those is having your evidence marked before trial. I, you know, you, I shouldn't have to sit there while you look for a sticker to put on the evidence to uh, label plaintiff's exhibit number 27. And then we, we, we shouldn't have to figure out, was this 26 or was this 27? Just put a number on them before we start. If you admit them out of order, it doesn't mess me up and it doesn't admit, mess my clerk up if you admit them that way. Just have them marked before you get there. Sorry to depart from this, but we have some lawyers who in criminal cases suggest that if the jury sees that you skipped a number, it must mean you're hiding something. I I have no problem telling the jury that sometimes lawyers mark exhibits and sometimes they admit them and sometimes they don't, depending on how the evidence comes out. Do you have that problem where people won't admit them and won't mark them in criminal cases because they think it's going to send some sort of uh, silent message? No, I've never had anybody say that way, but uh, I can see in the crazy minds of lawyers out there that something like that might make some twisted sense. But like you said, I don't have any problem with instructing the jury that that just ain't so. All right. Our number next question on domestic relations evidence. What are common mistakes that you see family lawyers make? Well, you know, we, we've talked about this on some other podcasts, but one of the things that comes up often in family law cases is presentation of um, attorney's fees. People want to get attorney's fees. They want to ask for attorney's fees. And um, it's one of the things that we commonly get reversed probably on the most in, uh, in domestic relations cases, and that's the award of attorney's fees. And the reason for that is this. Number one, 
in order to receive attorney's fees, you must have a statute that allows you to get attorney's fees. So when you present that to us, the judges, you need to tell us what statute you are asking for them under. And if you don't know the statutes under which uh, you're asking for attorney's fees, you might want to refer to our podcast on attorney's fees. And uh, we actually have an upcoming podcast that we're going to be doing on specific to domestic relations attorney's fees. But nevertheless, you always have to state the statute that uh, the fees are being awarded under. And second, you have to recite the... um, uh, the, the basis for the fees, the, the factual basis or, or whatever the underlying requirements are for awarding fees under that particular statute. And uh, as I said, that's one of the things we get reversed on the most and uh, certainly something that attorneys uh, as well as judges would be interested in. You know, you talked about what we get reversed on the most. The other thing we all, we, we went through a spate, I guess, of, of getting reversed for a while on not including reasons for the deviation in the child support worksheets. You know, we talked about that recently in another episode, but but you just, even if it's a settlement agreement, that, that subsection E has to be marked. We're relying on you lawyers to do that. And we shouldn't have to do that, especially if it's uncontested purportedly, because we don't know the evidence. Just answer the three questions. That's yeah. all we need you to do. Really good point, Wade. Well, let me move on to to another question. Question number three, Wade. What do you wish more family lawyers knew about using evidence in hearings? You can't introduce their iPhone. I really <laughs> wish that everybody would grasp that. That you it's the sh- same one I was going to say, Wade. That's weird. <laughs> Well, what I usually tell them is if you'll put a sticker on that iPhone and then run out to your car and get me the charger, because the court of appeals is going to need the charger in order to be able to see those photographs or hear that, hear that video. Yeah. I mean, it's just maddening. And I do understand that a lot of people run their lives, particularly with their ex-spouse or the father or mother of their child off of text messages, emails, whatever. But I'm just saying I can't do anything with that when you do it. Now, you could refresh your recollection and you could have the client testify about that. But if you're wanting to show me the exchange or whatever, you're going to have to somehow screenshot that, email it to yourself, print it, take a picture, something. I need something so that I can hand it to the Court of Appeals because you're right. They don't have those little square things, the little plug things for chargers, and they really struggle with that, they tell us. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good one, Wade, and that one comes up all the time. All right, virtual proceedings. Speaking of things that come up all the time, um, <laughs> in domestic relations arena during having virtual court, what are this is question four. What are some of the unique issues or mistakes that you've seen during virtual proceedings? Well, if I could instruct any lawyers who are out there listening and judges too, learn how to use the screen share function on Zoom. Um, It's extremely helpful in the presentation of evidence to be able to not only send the evidence or the the potential uh, documents to opposing counsel and to the judge, but if you can put them up on the screen so that while you're asking your witness questions about them, uh, they can see them on the screen, it's incredibly, incredibly helpful. Second thing is, um, of course, the mistake we all make on on Zoom and the other ones these days is uh, we're always on mute. (laughs) And uh, there's a cool function on the Zoom program in particular where all you have to do is hold down the space bar and you can talk while you hold down the space bar. And then when you let it go, you're back on mute. And for me as a judge, that's been a real handy uh, thing to use recently uh, just to make a quick comment like, Uh, sustained. (laughs) You know, I don't have to find the mute button. I don't have to find uh, the mouse to get to the mute button or anything like that. Um, Just those are just some little quick, easy things. How about you? Have you had anybody, not just pro se's now, even lawyers appearing while driving? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I, this is my favorite one. So I had a lawyer who was driving while he was going to do his client's criminal plea, his guilty plea. And I said, well, sir, uh, you need to pull over because it's actually illegal for you to conduct this hearing while you're driving. So he said, well, wait a minute, my law partner's in the car with me. So he handed the phone to his law partner who continued to conduct the hearing as they went down the highway. And also as they went through the drive-through at (laughs) Chick-fil-A. 
So in the background, while his client is doing a plea, I'm hearing, um, would, would you like a drink with that, sir? <laughs> my pleasure. And uh, so anyway, that was my favorite one so far. But yeah, I don't, don't, don't do hearings while you drive. I don't necessarily care if people wear coats and ties to, to a video hearing, but I would expect you to be the lawyer. I mean, the, with pro se's, I understand I'm, I'm limited somewhat in what I can expect. But from lawyers, I would expect you at least to be still or be pulled over. Right. I love the one where people are walking while they're oh my holding God. their phone and walking around. I get seasick while, uh, while that happens. That happened. Um, that happened to me. Yeah. Um, are you going to, I'm going to keep asking, this is five. Are you going to be, when it's safe to return, when we're not under the judicial emergency, do you intend to continue to use virtual hearings? And if so, how? Absolutely. Um, first of all, I hope deep down in my heart that at least in my courtroom, uh, COVID and the advent of Zoom hearings and virtual hearings has meant the death of the mass calendar call. As much as I love a good 300-person calendar call where I get to see basically every criminal or domestic or civil lawyer uh, in, the, in the jurisdiction, um, I can do it really efficiently uh, electronically. And I had wanted to try that for a long time, but I was really afraid that it was, it would rock everyone's world. If I tried it now that we've done it, I hope to never go back, but you know, short hearings, particularly, uh, non-evidentiary hearings. Um, but even for easy, you know, simple evidentiary hearings with, you know, just the parties or the parties and their lawyers, I, I can absolutely see that the economies of, uh, of having those done virtually uh, would be great, but don't get me wrong, Wade. I'd like to have some human beings in my courtroom too. Uh, I'm, I'm missing y'all out there, I'm missing you bad. And we're so tired of doing the whole "you're on mute, I'm on mute." Do you have enough bandwidth? Do you, I can't see your video? That's we understand that's frustrating for lawyers because it's frustrating for judges. But at the same time, being able to use some of this technology and especially when you have parties who are in other areas and, and you have witnesses that may be across the country or whatever, there's really just no reason not to, frankly, use Zoom when we can. Now, we have well, some different issues in criminal cases, but in domestic cases, it makes a lot of sense. But, uh, you know, to be fair, pre-COVID, uh, you were using and I, I was also using um, video hearings very effectively for uh, inmates uh, who were already in the prison system so that they didn't have to be transported all over the state to uh, to have, you know, a, a simple hearing. Now, if they were going to trial or if they were having a motion for a new trial or something like that, we might have them brought. But uh, we were using those very effectively even pre-COVID. Well, Tane, since we've already talked about number six, I want to jump to number seven. Uh, this is under a heading that's called types of evidence, which probably means we should have talked more about the rules of evidence in that first part. But, oh, well, how do you <laughs> like to see financial affidavits used in evidence in a domestic hearing? Sure. Um you know, a lot of lawyers, and I think this is a good idea, one of the first things they do is um, have their domestic relations financial affidavit marked as an exhibit. And the reason for doing that is obvious, so that when you're referencing it in the uh, in the record, it has a number uh, and it follows sequentially along with the other things that you're going to be referring to. It doesn't have to be admitted. It's already in the record technically, but I think it's a good idea to give it an exhibit number. Um, and then I like for you, uh, you know, for the for the person presenting that to just walk me through it. Just make sure that I understand, um, particularly if you have something unusual, like uh, why are you having uh, $2,000 a month worth of dinners outside of the home if you don't have anyone but you uh, living underneath your roof? You know, if, if there's a reason for that, I need to know what it is. Or, uh, you know, okay, I've got teenagers at home. That's why my grocery bill is $3,000 a month or something crazy like that. But uh, I want you to walk me through that because as you know and I know, no, Wade. Um, a lot of times lawyers uh, will let their clients fill out the domestic relations financial affidavit. And the numbers that we get aren't really connected with reality. A lot of times, um, if you've got $2,000 worth of grooming uh, expenses every month, I, I may need to know about that. That may need to be something medical we need to deal with or uh, or if you're taking $2,000 worth of vacations a month, I definitely need to know about that as well. But, but I, I just, I would like for them to very briefly walk me through particularly the highlights and anything unusual in that. 
The biggest thing is, folks, we need proof of income. We we are stuck in child support world or anywhere else if we don't have some some proof of income. And so one of the big things we're looking for is having some reliable under oath proof of income. And unfortunately, many lawyers, because they're trying to be to the point, they'll come in and say, Judge, we disagree uh, that the child support ought to be 350, it ought to be 450, and here's why. I need somebody to swear this is what your income is. Then I can make a sort of decision as to whether or not that's a valid number or not based upon the other evidence that you present. But if I had just have somebody handing me a child support worksheet and no affidavit, I don't really have any evidence, any proof of income. I don't even have any proffered proof of income. I just got a child support worksheet. So, Right. Well, let me let me move to another one that uh, that I, is kind of a favorite of mine. Um, how valuable, Wade, to you are witness affidavits in a temporary hearing? It definitely depends. And how's that? Well, I mean, you know, it's one of those things where I wish I could say always or never, but that's just not the case that it that it is. The affidavits from your mama and them. That not help. They're not helping me very much. If your mama's, you know, if your mom now, if your mom's giving you a negative affidavit to the other side, that's a whole another issue. Right. But but sometimes people Did want you to see that affidavit. My mom gave. <laughs> yeah, I was you... outraged. Anyway, um, if sometimes people think they need to do an affidavit, they don't really care who it's from or what it says, and they say, "Well, he's a great guy." That's not. You're not moving the needle. You've wasted your time and mine because they didn't prove anything. I would like I would rather see something from a true witness to an event or to some, you know, medical thing or whatever. I need something that is substantive and I would tell you that they probably matter more in child custody disputes than they would in financial disputes because again, the affidavits are being tendered in a temporary hearing. And so, you know, they're not, they're they're usually not tendered in a final hearing because they don't usually come in but you know they're not subject to cross and i know that and so i'm going to give them i guess less weight but give them weight nonetheless what about you what about you just as an interesting aside on what you just brought up there while they're not admissible in the final hearing under the pace versus pace and and the cases that follow that the evidence that you consider at the temporary can be used in the final and there hasn't been a case so far that says that doesn't include the things that are in the affidavits. And I bring that up to say um, for the lawyers out there who are listening, affidavits can be important. I mean, don't give them, you know, don't, don't dismiss their use out of hand, but I agree with Wade, you know, um, affidavits from people who are just going to say, oh, this person's a really good person. And I've been their friend for a really long time. And that's why I know that they're a really good person. However, you know, an affidavit from a teacher saying this child is struggling in school because he has special needs and we're testing him for dyslexia. Hey, that's helpful to me. You know, I might need to know who needs to get be in charge of his educational needs on a temporary basis or something like that. Um, or uh, from the child psychologist saying he's been in counseling with me for six months because of an event that happened concerning this parent or that parent. So uh, those can be helpful and, and they can make a difference. So going forward on related tracks, nine and 10, how many affidavits are too many? And then when do you normally want to see them before the hearing or during or some other time? Sure. Um, I want them before the hearing um, because I'll just be honest with folks. The way that my schedule normally goes, um, I usually spend a few minutes and I'm just going to be honest, a few minutes before the hearing looking over the allegations, exactly what we're going to be looking at that day. And then if there are any witness affidavits, if it's a temporary, I try to look those over. I will say this, though. I do read the affidavits. Um, You know, I feel like if people put something into evidence, um, I need to take a few minutes and go over those. Now, again, if it's an affidavit that just goes on for pages about what a great person they are, that might get a pretty quick read from me. But I do look at them and I, I, I just want people to know that, you know, they can be important. How many is too many? Well, <laughs> how many can I read in a 10 minute period of time while I'm trying to go over this case? So, you know, if you if you bombard me, particularly with the ones that aren't very helpful, uh, they're probably not going to get as deep a read as they would as if you gave me three or four or maybe five really, you know, well worded and short affidavits. 
and that are and that are pointed to the issue right. you're trying to make that witness testify to, not all the background and all of that. Yeah, I think I agree with everything that you said there. So now, um, if one party submits an affidavit and the opposing party doesn't submit an affidavit, is that going to be impactful to your final decision in the case? Game over, Wade. Game over. <laughs> you <laughs> no. better be serious. There are going to be people freaking out and doing affidavits. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, there are some cases where literally the party's testimony is all I really need at the temporary. You know, I mean, if it, uh, particularly if there's a, a, a case where there, where there are no children uh, and we're just trying to decide, um, you know, do we need temporary attorney's fees for one side or the other? I may only need to hear from the parties on that. I mean, I don't know that their mother's affidavit is going to help me very much on that issue. So uh, I think there are times where it just doesn't make any difference at all. Now, if one side puts in a hundred affidavits and the other side puts in three, I may really be in favor of the guy who put in three really good affidavits more than the person who put in 97 that I didn't need and three that I did. Uh, what about you, Wade? Oh, uh, that just makes me my skin crawl thinking somebody's going to put in dozens of affidavits. I understand you're being facetious with a hundred, but dozens really just don't help me. There's not, you don't have dozens of witnesses like that. So right. yeah, I agree with everything you said. Well, well, let's go into a different uh, let's go into a different topic or a different set of topics. Um, next, let's talk about some financial issues. And the first one that always pops up or that people like to ask us questions about how we decide them. Talking about alimony, yeah, yeah. I want to talk about uh, start about start with alimony. You know, we so, just let me let's just tell people because they don't know. We just finished yeah. NJO not long ago, I guess six or eight weeks ago. New and, judge orientation for those who don't know what NJO is. That is correct. And one of the things that you really saw the newest judges really want to ask a lot about is alimony because, as everyone knows. There are child support guidelines. They give us at least a base part, a base to operate from, and then we can deviate upward or downward based upon the evidence and, and the criteria for, for deviation. There's not a similar document or a set of rules or standards for alimony. And so, you know, it, it was interesting to see how many of the judges were asking about it because here's the thing I, I, I would like to make sure everybody understands from – from our standpoint, because we have talked about this, how often do you think you are considering a what most people call a permanent alimony award? Yeah, in in my 13 years on the bench, I remember three or four cases of permanent alimony where we're talking about lifetime, you know, till the day you die kind of alimony. Um, and those were really unique circumstances. They were, you know, a party who either had never worked or I remember one specifically where the party had had been very ill during the marriage, the wife, and, and she couldn't work and was never going to be able to work. She had a very uh, small amount of disability that she was going to be trying to live on. And the husband, on the other hand, um, you know, had a pretty good income and also, uh, you know, had insurance and she did not have insurance or wasn't going to be having insurance once they were divorced. And that that definitely factored into uh, a case that was lifetime alimony. But not a lot of cases from me have uh, and, and it was also, I would say, a long term marriage as well. But what about you, Wade? What kind of factors do you look at, not just in lifetime alimony, but in, in any case of alimony? Well, you know, you have the statute and I guess there's sort of a series of statutes, 1961, 1965 and 1963. But when you look at those statutes, they give you some factors to consider, but it's always one of those including but not limited to the following sort of right. implications. I, I usually look at the length of the marriage. It matters to me a great deal. The ability of each party to pay or pay alimony or to work and earn income. Both of those factors are the driving factors. It is usually has very, very little to do with punishment. I think that there was a false impression years ago that if you were a bad actor during the marriage, whether it be affairs or whatever, that that meant you were probably going to either pay or get alimony. And I, that's not my, I don't think that's a, a part of what I do. I, I look at the cause of the breakup. I look at the conduct of the parties during the marriage, but I'm looking more 
toward their conduct as how they paid bills and how they had income and what they did. Kind of like you were saying with the case you were talking about, when you have someone who's excessively ill, all of those things matter far more to me than any conduct. What about you? Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, there's a, the, one of the first things that's cited in OCGA section 19-6-5 is um, that, that can be considered in awarding alimony, and that is the standard of living established during the marriage. Well, I don't know about you, Wade, but it has been my uh, observation over the last 13, 14 years that the standard of living to maintain two households as opposed to one is generally not going to be the same. So, always, always, yeah, I, always. I, I think it's that's kind of a superfluous uh, uh, factor to look at because I can't help these people continue to maintain the same lifestyle that they've had prior to the divorce because two two houses are more expensive than one. In fact, almost twice as expensive as one. Am I right? Absolutely. And and even if you're cutting corners on one of the two houses, you know, you're you're living in an apartment as opposed to a house. All of the, you know, two sets of deposits for utilities, two sets of utilities there's always a pile of expenses that, that are more expensive for two than it would be for one, regardless of the size of house. Now, do you, do you let, what impact does conduct have when you're considering alimony? Well, uh, you know, obviously if one party has been a bad actor, um, if I decide that alimony is appropriate, you know, that might subconsciously lead me to be a bit more generous in the alimony. But I guess, I guess what I'm trying to say is, is the same as what you're saying, which is that is not the factor that I use to determine how much alimony or whether alimony is appropriate or not. I know it, it can factor into it. And I think we would, it wouldn't be completely inappropriate for it to be uh, factored into it, but it doesn't usually, uh, that's not usually what I use to figure out whether one party or another is, is going to get alimony in, in my cases. I agree. Well, let me ask this, uh, because people do ask this of us from time to time. So let's say we have a, a temporary hearing and temporary alimony is established. And then subsequent to the temporary hearing, everything objectively is essentially going well between the parties and they seem to be financially doing okay. Um, does that normally mean to you that whatever alimony you have awarded in the temporary is going to continue? And if so, that it'll continue at the same amount? It definitely depends. You know, at some point here, we Tane and I both are sort of reluctant to give you always or nevers because sure. there's going to be a factual scenario with one slight twist that's going to really change this analysis. When it comes to giving the temporary order and making and let that sort of inform my, my final decision in the case, it would be illogical for it not to at least impact my decision. I mean, that tells me if, if somebody can't pay their bills and they're being sued on their credit cards or whatever, that, that tells me that maybe they don't have enough money. Now, that may not be a function of – that may be a function of expense and not income. You know, that may be a spending habit problem and not necessarily an income problem. But, Tane, more often the people that I see that are having these sorts of discussions, if they were being completely candid and their egos weren't in the way – they would be great candidates for bankruptcy. <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't, I try to never say, Hey, you know what you really need to do is, is declare bankruptcy. But yeah, I mean, I, I told, I've told people in cases before, I cannot fix the financial mess that you've made for yourselves. I just cannot because the, the dollars and cents just don't add up. And so, uh, you know, I, I mean, you dig a hole that's too deep to dig yourself out of, and there's not a lot that I can do about that. Um, what I will say, though, about alimony is if I have awarded, and this is kind of an always, <laughs> if I have awarded temporary alimony, if, if subsequently I decide to give lump sum alimony, or if we're even considering the question of, of lump sum alimony, it is going to factor in that the person has already paid for a period of time. 
temporary alimony. If it's a year or two years or however long it drags out before we get to the final, that is certainly going to factor into my determination as to how long alimony should have gone on for uh, before it ends. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that I don't know that I said a while ago is some of the factors that I look at when I'm deciding uh, whether to grant alimony or not, it would be a very unique circumstance for me to grant alimony for a longer period of time than the parties were married. It is oh, not, yeah. I mean, you know, that's not a rule and it absolutely could happen. That's why I have to keep saying, yes, it definitely depends. But, but as a rule, the length of marriage is going to inform the length of need of alimony. Usually it could change, but usually. So, yeah, I think, I think short-term marriage versus long-term marriage certainly affects me too, as to whether or not it's likely to be an alimony case at all. And I think you said that earlier too, you know, if it's, if we're talking about a two-year marriage, the likelihood that I'm going to give alimony in that case is pretty, pretty small. Yeah. Unless there are some really big extenuating circumstances. Um, some of the questions that, that you received at your panel seem to move to modification of alimony. And what factors do you typically look at to see whether mo alimony modifications are warranted or terminate? Or do you ever look at the live and lover law, which is actually the meretricious relationships law? I think, I think Georgians have a hard time saying meretricious. And so we call <laughs> it the live and lover. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, Yes, I have granted a modification or a termination of alimony due to, due to live and lover. I have a lot more arguments about it than I have proof of it. But at the end of the day, we're still talking about a fractional number of cases where there is permanent alimony. You know, you and I, you mentioned the word lump sum or the phrase lump sum alimony a while ago. And, and there's, there's something that everybody needs to remember. If you can do the math problem on the date of the order and decide exactly how much that person is going to have to pay, there's no contingencies that could change it. That is lump sum alimony that is being allowed to be paid in installments. That's that right. is not subject to modification. Right. If, on the other hand, there is a contingency that could change the amount of alimony owed over the lifetime of the divorce, that is permanent alimony. People get periodic and permanent all screwed up and they get just all twisted around. We can modify a permanent award of alimony. We cannot modify a lump sum, even if it is in installment. So if they get remarried or whatever, if that, if it was capable of being calculated to the penny without, and there was no contingencies that could change it, we can't really modify it. Yeah, you know, the question that we were going to or that was posed was what factors do you typically look at to help you decide whether modifying alimony is warranted? Well, the very first one of those is, is it modifiable? Um, you know, either under the statute because it's because it's actually lump sum alimony or because the parties have said that it's not modifiable. I mean, if you have a settlement agreement between the parties that says that that they will not seek to modify their alimony, they're stuck. They're stuck with their with their contract. And I am not usually going to be the guy who's going to go and dig very deep to find a reason to un, undo a, an agreement that the parties freely and voluntarily made among themselves uh, when they decided to consciously uncouple. Well, if <laughs> uncouple. So let's move, if you don't mind, to equitable division, because I know there are some people that are probably looking for us to to touch this very third rail topic here. And Tane, I'm going to expand the question a bit. Do you divide people's pots and pans? That was the first question. Right. But the second one that you just have to tell people about is, do you award visitation with pets? <laughs> Wade, Wade, Wade. Wade always tries to put me in this pigeonhole just because of the one uh, order that I did for Bubby the dog. And... <laughs> here's I thought what I did was kind of clever Wade so I'm just going to start there and then we'll talk about the pots and pans problem um there was a case that was completely resolved with one exception the family dog Bubby 
uh, was the sole point of contention between these parties. And if we didn't get that resolved, we were going to have about a three-hour hearing over every other issue that was already essentially resolved because they couldn't decide what would happen, who would keep Bubby, where Bubby would be, when the child would see Bubby, et cetera, et cetera. So what, do the, you, what do you call a visitation plan with a dog? A dogging plan? Yeah. <laughs> Let's not go there. Let's just not go there. So I thought that it was quite clever. The, lawyer, I, the lawyers came in my office and they said, Judge, this is the one thing we're stuck on. We really need your help on this. And, I, and they told me about it. And I said, well, who does the dog belong to? And they said, well, they gave the dog to the child on his you know, eighth birthday or whatever. And I said, well, then it's not marital property. The dog belongs to the child and it's the child's dog. And I'm not going to divide it in this case. The dog goes with the child wherever the child goes. And they were like, judge, that's brilliant. That's Solomonic. That's amazing. You, on the other hand, continue to try to frame this as me doing visitation for a dog, which is just not true, Wade. Look, we don't let people visit with couches and big screen TVs. We shouldn't let them visit with collies. That's just not our deal. At some point, a dog, and to be to, to quit being whatever level of funny this may be, right? a dog is personal property. That's very hard for people to understand. You know, that's very- it's chattel. Wow. That, that was a flashback, <laughs> but yes, it is. And at some point the, as, as emotionally attached as the, as both parties may be with the dog or whatever, the iguana, whatever it is at some point, the flat screen TV, <laughs> at some point it's either yours or mine. I mean, it just has to go in the mix. And, and, and I, let us also remember, <laughs> cause people get really hung up on this. The street market value of a used coffee maker is not real high. I swear, so, I thought you were going to use dog. I really no. thought you were going to go to the street value <laughs> of a used dog. Okay, well, that too. I mean, you know, a, a nine-year-old Shih Tzu with, uh, you know, type 2 diabetes doesn't bring a lot on the open adoption market. So I'm just saying people spend a lot of times because of the emotional value here, but we have to divide the law says we have to divide things as property and treat them as property. And that's what we do. So we had judges here when I was practicing law, which, which seems like a hundred years ago now that used to divide property like this. They would say, identify for me everything that's in contest that you, both of you claim ownership to, and they would come up with some list and then they would say, okay, either, I mean, literally you could flip a coin, but or, or the judge would designate you get first pick pick the list. You pick mm -hmm. the thing that's most important to you. You pick the thing that's most important to you. Inevitably, somebody would get the bedroom, you know, the frame and somebody else would get the bedside tables or they would take the mattresses just to be, you know, that way with their ex. But to be honest with you, we understand that pots and pans are equitable, that they are property. They usually are not about the skillet. It's usually about why you left me for that other person. Right. But at the end of the day, they fight over, they identify the skillet as the thing they want to fight about. And that's just not where I want to spend. And I don't think parties and lawyers want the judge to spend their time. At some point, they can mediate that. They can rock, paper, scissors it. They can do whatever they want to do. At some point, it really doesn't need to be the thing that, that we litigate. Now, how often have I awarded some? different division other than 50 50 which is kind of the next question here and i think they're talking maybe assets and debts here right i would tell you i've done that kind of frequently if you were to ask me in a, in the abstract where does where does having an affair play in the mix well having an affair doesn't mean that you're not necessarily going to get custody or visitation i mean that depends but I'm not going to let that drive that determination. Right. It's going to matter in how much money or debt or the, 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 what is equitable. Cause you, as you know, Tane, equitable doesn't mean even, even though everybody comes in starting 50, 50 equitable and, and, means and let fair. Me ask, let, let me ask this. If, if 
if you guys who are listening out there could share that phrase on your Facebook page with 10 friends and ask them to share it with 10 friends, that equitable doesn't mean even, eventually everyone will understand that we're not going to try to divide every asset to the penny uh, or anything like that. But wait, I'm sure you still have people just get apoplectic in your courtroom like I do, that you didn't divide that you know, 50, 50 judge. At some point you can't make a, ma a, a, a marriage, a math problem. At some point right. we can't go back and attribute how much did, how often did you take out the trash versus how often did you cut the grass? I mean, that's just, you can't do that. So and as you said a minute ago, with respect to the, 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 the wayward spouse, sometimes making those kinds of decisions becomes an expensive decision um, down the road and uh, not just in attorney's fees, but in what you end up getting in the marriage. And, you know, uh, I, I think that from my perspective, um, I, I agree. It rarely comes out 50, 50. I'm, I made the, the mistake at the very beginning of my time on the bench trying to do these ridiculous math gymnastics to make things work out. And I was doing people a disservice because I was taking money out of a 401k plan to try to even up something else and probably causing people terrible tax consequences in the process. And, you know, it, it just doesn't make sense sometimes. All right. So since we're getting super long, let's, let's jump yeah. to custody. Cause I think we may have gone over our 20 question goal here, but that's okay. <laughs> um, well, let me ask this question, Wade. Mm -hmm. Do you interview children in child custody cases? And if so, how do you do that? Yes, I absolutely do because I am not a big fan of guardian ad litems as a general rule. And there's a whole long reason for that, that we don't need to get into it. I know that guardian ad litems have a great role. Just make sure that wherever you are in your circuit, that your guardian ad litems, make sure they stay in the guardian ad litem role and they don't start changing visitation that the judge ordered. That becomes problematic and, we had a little bit of that in a prior generation. So I've just, I, I, I really don't use guardians as much. So I will tell the parties, if you want me to, I will interview the child or children. During COVID, I'm doing it on Zoom. Back before COVID, I would do it in person, but I would be adamant that whoever transported the child to my chambers for this interview would have to be a non-litigant. It would have to be somebody the child trusted and the parties felt good about that could drive the child, but it wasn't mom or dad so that they were not either getting prepped or debriefed as they either came in or left the, the, the judge's office. Um, I do it a lot and, and I don't think I'm the child whisperer or anything, but sometimes you can get a sense from nonverbal clues from a child, kind of what's happening. Sometimes they'll tell you the truth and they will tell you that, Hey, judge, daddy's getting a, I'm getting a new mommy. Really? How do you know that? Well, they're getting married soon as mommy and daddy quit divorcing. Really? Yeah. Her name is Susie Q. Well, Susie Q is alleged to be the, you know, the, the, the other partner in an affair situation. And all of a sudden the six-year-old goes, can I have some candy? I mean, you know, that, that's about <laughs> how, but then some children, unfortunately, have been absolutely trained up or coached. Sure. And th they walk in, you go, hey, my name's Wade. What's your name? Uh, mommy smokes cigarettes. <laughs> okay, that's really not your name. Absolutely. Um, oh, you've been trained to come tell me all that. Well, let me back up, Wade, and ask this. So, so you like to interview the children in chambers or nowadays while we're on Zoom, you're interviewing them in a breakout room. Is that right? Yeah. And so what do you put on the record or what do you, what do you tell the parties with respect to that before you and the child, uh, you know, do the interview? Frankly, I won't do it unless the parties agree that I can do it with the child and I, but I do have an agreement with the parties that I will always write them a report from what I learned. I think as a lawyer and as a litigant, it would be really unfair for the judge to have interviewed the kid child, come back and say, okay, Present your first witness, knowing this secret in my head that you're now trying to discern. I always write a report to the parties and tell them what I learned to a, to a large part. I mean, I don't go first. She said, I don't make it a transcript, but I do have notes that I write and I try to come up with a letter to the lawyers so that they can share with their clients. I, I file them under seal. They don't need to be a part of the record. 
but so that the parents can understand what their child says to the judge about what's happening in their house. So I always do that. I always do it alone. If they insist on being there, whatever, I just won't do it because I don't get a good, that is a useless exercise. Agreed. That That is just, that is just tug of war of a child. And is anyone else in the room with you when you interview the, uh, if I have a child live and in color, there's going to be another adult in the room, but their goal is to never say a word. Their goal is to smile and be nice and be warm and whatever. But their goal is to just sit there and, and not really participate in the, in the conversation other than, Hey, how you doing? I'm Susan or I'm John or whatever. And then, Hey, it was great to see you. Hope you have a good day. I'm glad you like basketball because it's on your shirt, whatever. That's it. Yeah. I, I have my staff attorney do the same. Well, let me ask you this. Um, how do you view the elections of 14 year olds uh, it, with respect to custody? And also how do you, how do you view the election of 10 year olds uh, in, in your courtroom? Pretty strong. I follow the law. I mean, I, I don't mean to be funny about that, but I generally follow the law. And I think that the, the law says that it still must be in the child's best interest, but that the 14 year olds election means something. Whereas the next group, which I, as I recall is a, a 10 to 14, 10 to 14. Or maybe 11, maybe it's 11. I think it's 11, 14 that they are interesting, but not in any way persuasive and younger than that. They're not. And I treat them that way, frankly, because I would argue as a human, not as a judge or as a lawyer, but as a human that some 14 year olds, decision-making skills are wanting that they are just not awesome. I think that's why we call them juveniles because they think like juveniles. Whereas at 11, 12, 13 year old is even worse. And you get children that, you know, just from what you're told that they are being motivated by ice cream, cars, video games, cell phones, whatever. Exactly. And, and at some point you kind of say, you know, I don't think that's what we ought to need, need to be making all these decisions about. I do appreciate why it is a part of the law. I, I fully acknowledge it's the law, but like some other parts of the law team, we don't get to choose the ones we like. We have to follow all of them. And this is one that I follow sometimes holding my nose a bit, but follow them as a general proposition. You too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I I'm basically in the same camp that you are on that Wade. Well, let me ask you one final question, and then we'll, uh, we'll, 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 we'll wrap up for everybody. How do you view issues like drug and alcohol addiction, infidelity, and spousal abuse or, or domestic violence in the home um, in trying to make a determination of custody? So, Tane, we talk about this at NJO, the new judge orientation that we do every year, because one of the things that we identify for judges is that you've got to be aware that whatever your personal history is, just by human nature, will impact your decision-making. And so you've got to be very careful that you can separate out what happened between your mom and dad. And if you hear a trigger issue in this case between A and B, that you don't let that impact that. Um, I would tell you that substance abuse and spousal abuse is much more weighty with me than is infidelity with, with sort of a pair, a, a parenthetical after that saying, unless the paramour has been exposed to the child and put the child in a position or unless the paramour is a problem, you know, there's some sort of problem with the paramour. The fact that, that you left mommy to go be with Susie Q that's not going to say to me, that's not going to dictate whether you can or cannot see your child or whether you do or do not get custody. It's going to matter a lot if your conduct potentially causes physical or emotional harm to the child. And if you have made an adult decision that your child doesn't even really aware of, that's one thing. If you have a drug and alcohol abuse, that puts the child at risk potentially. If you have a spousal abuse, that really bothers me. What about you? Yeah, I I think what I try to think about in all of those cases is, are there safeguards I can put into place that will keep the child safe, but still allow them to continue to have a reasonable relationship with that parent? So 
I, I remember a case I had where the parent had uh, had a mental illness um, that affected the way that they acted. But I didn't want the child. I mean, the reality was that that was that child's parent and that that child's parent had a mental illness. And it wasn't something, you know, where I, I felt like the child was in danger, but it was something where I felt like the child needed some precautionary safeguards in place. And so um, the child, because the parent might, uh, uh, I can't remember what it was, but like, maybe it was a medical problem because I think it was a, a thing where the parent might might pass out or might go to sleep or, or whatever and leave the child there. So so I, I, the visitation didn't have to be supervised, but there had to be another adult in the house. There had to be somebody there where if, you know, something happened um, that the child would have someone to, to call, you know, or, 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 or call out for whatever. So that's what I try to do is look at, are there some other things we can do short of, you know, cutting off the relationship with this parent that might work. You know, um, you did all this research, but under 1997, there are some factors that said when awarding parenting time or visitation, that if there is proof of one or more acts of family violence, the, the judge may, among other things. And one of the things is that be supervised visitation. I've awarded a lot of supervised visitation, but I try really hard to find someone that both parties can agree would act in the child's best interest that's not a stranger to the child so that this doesn't become even more awkward than it already is. Agreed. Agreed. Well, Wade, that was uh, that was a good exercise. I think we'll probably try this again sometime, the 20 questions methodology for getting at some common issues. But uh, folks, uh, Hopefully that uh, gives you a little insight into how we deal with some of these, uh, these common questions in the domestic relations arena and our thoughts on how they could be handled. Remember, these are not our opinions. As to quote Tame as he does in the intro, these are barely our thoughts. So they're definitely not the thoughts of ICJE, anyone else in authority or anybody else with an acronym name. But seriously, you have to understand that we are answering these questions as try to be insightful to both judges and lawyers there are facts that are going to radically change the outcome of all of these situations. So just understand that everything is definitely depends, and then we sort of operate from there. With that, folks, I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. And thank you for joining us on the Good Judgment Podcast. And also, thanks for staying socially distanced during this. Thanks for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. This podcast was originally the brainchild of Mr. Doug Ashworth, who is the executive director of ICJE. Special thanks to the University of Georgia College of Law and specifically to Mr. Jim Henneberger. Thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, for editing out as much of our stupidity as he can. But he can't get it all. We are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allow us to lead NJO, that's New Judge Orientation, for new Superior Court Judges and for their support of this project. The opinions expressed on this podcast are our own and do not reflect the opinions of CSCJ, ICJE, the UGA College of Law, or anyone else for that matter. These are barely the opinions of Wade Padgett and Tang Kell, so we definitely aren't speaking for anyone else. You can contact us on our website, goodjudgepod.com. Or send us an email at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. So, Tane, I guess we better bang the gavel on this episode. Anything else you feel like we need to say? Only to quote Janet Jackson, that's the end. Thanks for listening to the Good Judge Men Podcast.